Live from Pemberley, this is Derailed Trains of Thought. folks, welcome to another episode of Derailed Trains of Thoughts, your favorite storytelling podcast. And this is Timothy Deal. Right here next to me is Nick Hayden. Hello, this is Nick. So um, tell me about this place, Nick. I know nothing about this. Yeah, you didn't. I had to tell you like five times how to pronounce it. Yeah, I know. Tim, <laughs> okay. Actually, this is Darcy's estate, as in like Ooh. Elizabeth and Darcy, Pride and Prejudice. Oh. You have four sisters, right? Yeah. Okay. I, I've tried to stay clear of Jane Austen as much as possible. I have, I I have to maintain some masculinity in a house full of women, and that's how I try to do it. <laughs> well, I have an expert better than me here with us today, actually, for a conversation. Yes, so, and I think well, I think I'll need it. So, with us today is Dawn Crandall, a friend of mine from I met at Taylor originally. She was grad going out as I was coming in. And then we kind of reconnected when I was doing these flash fiction contests on Facebook. Oh, yes. I remember that contest. That yeah. was fun. So, hi, Dawn. Hi. We, uh, we corralled Dawn via Skype, and uh, she is new to this technology, but she's doing well with it. I, I'm, and she tells me that uh, she really wishes she was here at Pemberley with us right yeah. now. Yeah. Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. That's Definitely. too bad. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, um, like I said, Dawn is very nice to meet you. And uh, I have a feeling you'll be very instrumental in helping us delve into our topic today in Story School. Story School today is about romance, and it is particularly fitting with Valentine's Day coming up and I feel I should point out that as much as I recognize my fellow singles and bachelors on Singles Awareness Day, I've never been one of these people that completely shun Valentine's Day because, you know, you gotta let these married people have their fun. <laughs> well, thank you, Tim. <laughs> You're welcome. That said, I'm not sure I'm entirely qualified to talk about this subject, <laughs> being a longtime bachelor. So well, that's why I brought Don. So Don, can you give us just a little rundown of basically your experience as a writer so far, kind of your interests and what you've been uh, doing? Well, let's see. When I got married about six years ago, I accidentally told my husband that I wanted to write a book. And so that's when he told me that I needed to do it. And <laughs> <laughs> so that, that was my first try was just trying to figure out how to write a book. And so for four years, I worked full time and then I just kind of did anything that I could think of in my spare time to try to figure out how to write a book. So about two years ago, I actually started writing the book. <laughs> nice. So four years of not writing and then two years of writing. Now you've finished a book yes. and you have an agent for it, correct? Yes. Now, does it have a title currently? Well, I call it Amaryllis Brigham, which is the name girl that it's about. It's from first person perspective. And this is just for our audience, this is a Victorian drama, correct? Or romance. Well, yeah, yeah. It's based in 1890 in Boston. Can you give us a, a just a thumbnail sketch maybe of the plot? Or is that hard? I can't I can't do summaries of my own books, but <laughs> I can't either. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I have stuff on my blog that says stuff about it that people can read. <laughs> well, give us your best shot so we have some baseline for what we're talking about. Oh, um, it's about a 25-year-old girl who's been without a family for most of her life since her mother died and she feels like it was her fault that her mother died. So she really doesn't have anyone 
to depend on, but then she gets thrown into Boston society because I don't, I don't even remember. (laughs) (laughs) You wrote the book, it's done. (laughs) Yeah, it's done, I know that much. Um, There's just all kinds of complexities. I mean, it involves suspense also. It's, my agent actually wants me to promote it as a historical romantic suspense. Because there's questions that she doesn't know the answers to about certain things that she finally figures out by the end of the book. And it's also a Christian book, so it also has that different character arc to it also. Interesting. Now, and you may not know, are there other books on the market that you would call Christian or call um, historical romantic suspense? That's a subcategory I've not heard of exactly before. I know. I mean, yeah, I guess so, because there's a few. I mean, I just, I love putting all those questions in my own book to make it interesting. And so I don't know if it's something other people do. It's just something that I just did naturally. Well, there's certainly plenty of historical romances. Yes. Yeah. And, and I, I think it's cool to have something like that. Yeah. I, I, that, I want to read it. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Adding the suspense in it adds a, that extra layer of appeal. My dad read it so far. and. He thought it was good. And he's a man. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, we, we invited you partly because Tim hasn't really, really written much romance. Not really. I have written some romantic comedy sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Or there's that one Desert Woman story too. But yes. that's a completely different beast. Yeah, well, Desert Woman is from the point of view of a married man. Yeah. Whereas the prequel to that, well, not prequel, the first one, All Seeing Prophet of Fortune and Love, is about the courtship process. Yeah. Bizarre courtship. But, but Dawn, I know you, with your book, you just you won't really wanted to focus on the female character from her first-person point of view. Yes. Um, I guess explain to me why. Why you chose that. Well, first of all, it's that style of writing just comes naturally to me. If I try to write from the other perspectives or whatever, I, I hate it. <laughs> Like, I hate writing that, and I just don't, I don't know. I guess if I tried a lot more and, like, practiced a whole lot, I'd get to the point where I could do it. But I just love writing first person so much because it comes out so naturally for me. And I know when you were when we were kind of discussing this podcast, you mentioned you had some books that kind of influenced you. Oh, yeah. Well, there's a lot of books that influenced me. I mean, the one I told you about was The One Gone with the Wind, just because that was the first book that I ever read that actually made me want to write a book. Then I forgot about it for half my life. (laughs) But it was always, like, deep inside of me saying, I want to write a book. I do. Maybe someday I will do it. But I just needed that one person to actually sit my butt down and say, okay, do it right now. (laughs) And so, but just the whole aspect of characters relating to each other, but you don't actually see the perspective of every character. Like a lot of books nowadays will say, okay, here's the story from the heroine's perspective, and then here's the perspective of the hero, and then their friend and the villain and everybody, and I'm just like, <laughs> yeah, that's not realistic to me. Like, I am I just like real things. And so when I write my book from first-person perspective, I say, you know what? This is how I would see the situation. I wouldn't know who to trust. I wouldn't know all the answers. And I think that's where the suspense comes through in my book is that 
you don't know everything that Tim might not be telling you. You know what I mean? Tim. <laughs> 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 no, don't that, look at me. <laughs> that's just real life. You don't yeah. know the other person's perspective. And I just love writing the book so that you do see the other, like you get to know the other people in my book through her relating to them and her trust in them growing in certain situations or diminishing in different situations just because that's how we all really are. That's a really good point. I guess then I want to ask you, how do you think that first person, you know, only being able to know people through the heroine's point of view, how does that play into the idea of romance in your book or in, in books in general? In my book, the hero is the son of someone she thinks has been out to destroy her life for reasons that you find out eventually throughout the book. But she doesn't trust him at all at the beginning of the book just because of who she's related or who he is related to. But as the book goes on and on and on, like you see him trying to get through to her. I think as the reader, most of my friends and readers who have read it so far understand partly that okay, I want to trust that guy, but can I, you know? And so I'm just kind of playing on the whole, okay, she really likes this guy against her will, but really thinks that she really shouldn't, you know? And it seems like with a romance, largely you have this setup where the, and you can tell me whether this is true, in yours or other things, that the, the two main characters tend to have something separating them. Mm -hmm. It seems to be something kind of necessary. Yeah. I mean, I try to be really creative in what, separates my characters in my second book that i'm writing it's a completely different situation like opposite where everything that you take from the first one it would just be completely opposite for the second book that i'm writing but they're always separated by something and it could be any number of things i guess do you have all examples either really good examples of the separation from books movies or maybe movies or books you read where it's just really lame oh when it's lame yeah. Yeah, there's a lots of movies that are really... <laughs> <laughs> but I, I'm, I'm curious just to hear your opinion on one of them, because I think part of the reason to do good romance is see what's not working. Yeah. So are you saying, like, a situation where the things that are keeping them apart are lame? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Where you're like, okay, really? Uh-huh. <laughs> well, and I read books like that, too, where you're just kind of like, that's not really that big of a problem. You know, <laughs> it's like, okay, chapter yeah. two could be fine if they just like said, I'm stupid and I'm sorry. <laughs> or something, you know what I mean? <laughs> it's usually a matter of communication, isn't it? Yes. Like, it, like if you would just say, well, I couldn't come to your party because my boss was about to fire me, then maybe, you know, she wouldn't be mad at him for the next. Yeah. Whatever. <laughs> so I try to make gigantic problems in between these people. So that way, it's just something you can't fix in a chapter. You need like 20 chapters to fix. Yeah. We've commented before, like, in some TV series where that's built off a lot of romantic tension, will they or won't they get together sort of thing, you draw that on for too long, then your story kind of stalls. Small hell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. I would never want to write a book where, okay, book one is just them getting together, and then book two and book three are the same people. I mean, there's some books that I've read like that that I enjoyed, but they're, I don't know, not often that I like that. I like it where 
at the end of the book, they're together, and it's like, oh, finally. <laughs> <laughs> that, that brings it down to the point. Do you think for a good romance in a novel that the end needs to be they get together? In my books, yes. <laughs> I I don't like it when, well, see, I'm contradicting myself because in Gone with the Wind, they weren't together. <laughs> so so how do, why does that work? I haven't read Gone with the Wind. I've seen the movie, but why does that work? Them not getting together. Well, I can tell you my opinion will probably differ from from Dawn. <laughs> <laughs> if I remember right, the whole book of Gone with the Wind takes place in about twelve years, and Scarlett O'Hara is married three different times within there, and she's widowed the first two times, and then finally marries the hero of the book, and so the last half of the whole book they're actually married to each other, but she's so blinded by certain things that she doesn't even see what she has until he's gone and that is the very last page is when he's gone she realizes it and it's just her character arc in those 12 years are just crazy she's just a very complex character i mean in 12 years anybody would be a complex character i think (laughs) (laughs) that's true all right tim let's Uh, hear yours well in essence not terribly different the thing for me and this is now, I've only seen the movie. I've never actually read the book, so that could be completely different. But for me, I can't stand Scarlett O'Hara. So when <laughs> when she gets dumped at the very end of the movie, I'm happy. That's like, what, okay, that's what everyone I know that has not read the book and just seen the movie said. Like, my mom won't even read the book because she's just like, why would I want to read a book about that person? You know, because yeah. she sees... She only sees what they put in the movie, which, I mean, any book they make into movie form can't really get inside the characters as well as a book does. That, so yeah. you just see so much more of, I mean, she isn't a very nice person at the beginning of the book, but throughout the book, you see what is changing her and I'm sure you're right. I just don't want to read a 1,200-page book to get oh, to Oh, I know. You know. It's a really long book. Because <laughs> <laughs> here's another question. Since Tim brought up the not liking Scarlett O'Hare, what makes a sympathetic heroine, in your opinion, for this sort of... Or or sympathetic... What's the perfect guy, quote-unquote, for, for a romance? I mean, does it change opinion on the girl? Is it always kind of the same sort of thing? Yeah, well... I read once, I forget who it was or whatever, but they said something about how the female character in a romance usually has some kind of problem, <laughs> which, I mean, in my books, they're usually spiritually centered kind of problems where, like, something they're thinking about themselves is wrong or something about the world in general, and the hero has to be somebody that kind of helps her figure out what that is. Which is kind of how we have, tell me if I'm wrong, but like in Pride and Prejudice, it's that's why the title's that. Yeah. Okay. That's a perfect example. And that's <laughs> probably why I write the way I do is because that's my favorite book. <laughs> <laughs> now, can that be reversed? Is it sometimes the the man who has some, who's seeking for something and he has some deficiency that the woman helps him get over or completes for him or something? They could probably both have it, but I think for... A women's based romance that mostly women are going to read, that the woman character would probably definitely have to have it no matter what. My character, in, or my hero character in my first book, 
is more of the let me help you person and not the I'm so screwed up too (laughs) 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 gotcha I guess I was thinking of uh like you've got mail or the the original version with Jimmy Stewart, which I can't think. I think it's oh, yeah. a shop around the corner. Yeah, I've seen that. Yeah. Yeah, I guess that's I guess that's the kind where they're both kind of messed up and then they complete each other at the end. That's it's also one of those movies where the guy and the girl hate each other at the beginning of the movie. Mm-hmm. The audience isn't going to be satisfied until they're in love. Yeah. I guess that's the trick then, and I guess it goes with that that tension that we talked about. That the guy has to. The people have to hate each other for one reason or another to begin with. What do you think, Don? The more they hate each other at the beginning, is it the better when they come together? Well, in my book, the hero never hates the hero or heroine. Okay. And she doesn't necessarily hate him either. She just misunderstands what he's trying to do. Mm-hmm. But, she, I mean, she kind of thinks that he does hate her just because of his relationship to that man that I was talking about. So it's just her own perception of things that she sees that he might hate her, but he doesn't. Well, yeah, and Nick, even in your romantic comedies, the Taylor trilogy, Mike and Sophia don't hate each other That's starting true. off. They're just misunderstood. Misunderstood. <laughs> They're friends, they think, and it goes on to a different direction. Yeah. Okay, question I did not prepare you for, but <laughs> I have to ask, just because of the popularity and we're talking romance, what's your opinion of the Twilight series? I knew that was coming. <laughs> I don't know why. As soon as you were like, oh, I have to as ask your opinion. <laughs> I did not read all of the books, so I don't know about the whole thing. But I did read the first book, and I did watch... I watched the movie first, and I didn't watch the movie when everyone else did. I watched the movie because I got the movie for my sister-in-law for Christmas, and she was like, oh, have you read... Or have you seen this? I was like, No. <laughs> well then let's watch it right now and so i was like okay but then by the end of the two hours i loved it and so i think it's i mean see i didn't read the whole thing either and i haven't even seen the last movie out the first section of the last movie or whatever (laughs) i don't know if i can say like i hate the whole thing or i love the whole thing but i do like the first movie and i liked the first book i read the second book too and i liked it too so you think that she sets up a, a decent misunderstanding sort of yes tension thing going? Yes. I mean, she uses a very different way of doing it. I mean, she's more sci-fi, I guess. Yeah, sci-fi fantasy, yeah. I wouldn't, Paranormal. I guess, really call it that, but it's just, you know, made up yeah. problems. And so <laughs> <laughs> she's really good at it, and I liked it. I mean, I think watching that movie actually helped me figure out how my characters needed to relate to each other. Cause like it, when I was first starting to write my book, it was all in word. It was all in pieces. I just had scenes everywhere, you know, and I didn't know which way they were supposed to go in this book. And part of what helped me was when I downloaded Rider 5. That really helped a lot with making the plot of my book. But I think her her situation with her two lead characters actually like opened up my eyes to my own characters which is i mean yeah i can say twilight helped me write my book but <laughs> 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 so, <laughs> i mean it's a completely different situation different characters altogether. it's just there were things about their relationship that kind of were already part of mine that i was like oh that's how it goes <laughs> just when i was first starting out that was before i was even like i don't know writing it all out 
like day by day. Well, Nick, that makes two female that we've had on the podcast that enjoy Twilight. We need to ask more about it sometime. We should, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so what do you say, I think I think this is probably true, but what do you think, say basically the entire point of a, not point, but the center crux of a romance novel is relationship, is tensions in relationships. Yeah, but my ending is not just an ending where the... Two characters are like, oh, we love each other now. Okay, now we can end the book. <laughs> my my book actually is a lot more focused on her inner journey through her own perspective of going from the very beginning of the book and who she was then. And let's see, it's only from February to July. So that's the basis of my book. And in that time frame, so many things happened to her that she's just changed inwardly and spiritually. That's what I try to put into my books a lot. Like, I think that's really important. And it sounds like from talking to you and then things you read that you like to put, you like to layer lots of different stuff happening at one time. Yes. If I'm going to make a scene, there's going to be more than one reason for the scene. The reader might not know that walking into it, but by the time the scene is over, they're going to just be like, well, now there's all these other things that I'm wondering about. And so... I just like to make things complex, <laughs> nice. but not too complex because almost everybody that reads my book reads it in like two days. <laughs> so it's not like they're like, oh my gosh, what's going on? <laughs> yeah, They're just kind of like, oh, I need to find out more now because she just like opened up another door or whatever. So you have lots of things going I, I Tell me when you get it published. I'll be shouting it from the mountain. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, a lot of people who are interested in romance know where to go and find, you know, their Jane Austens and stuff. But mm -hmm. say they don't, what what would you recommend kind of as entry-level sort of things? I wouldn't, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like you read lots of these sort of books. I don't so. know. I, I have a hard time finding books that I like. It might be because I'm a writer. <laughs> That can sometimes make your uh, choices a little pickier. <laughs> I don't like yeah. these books. I'm going to write one. Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That could be a good reason for it. Well, let me ask you this then. What is your opinion of the kind of movie that's typically labeled a chick flick? Or, if you will, the kind of book that's typically labeled that, which, I mean, books aren't really labeled chick flicks, but you get the same kind of idea. Well, they, they actually call them chick lit. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's true. So do you, do you have an opinion on that? Do you think it's enjoyable or do you think it's just fluff i don't really read those and i don't watch them a lot like i'll i'll watch a movie once in a couple of months like i just i'm not that into movies or tv at all okay so i don't even know what movies would be out there to pick from right now and so i'm a bad person to ask about movies but with <laughs> books okay. that's fine chiclet isn't my favorite and i think in the christian market they don't well i guess they might call it chiclet but they call it just women's fiction, I think. It's not my favorite. I'm just not a good person to ask about that because I don't read that stuff. I mostly just read historical romance. So because that's what I write. And so <laughs> So what are some historical romances you've been reading lately? Books by Elizabeth Camden. I like her books a lot. She only has two. I just got the second one in the mail today from the publisher to review. Oh, nice. And then Deanne Gist. Julie Lessman is my absolute favorite. These are all Christian authors, and they're mostly larger, more complex plots than the like, smaller trade mass paperback size books. What sort of time periods do you like? Well, see, Julie Lessman writes World War One, 
Like, they all go in order, so they're even up into the 30s now. Pretty soon she's going to be in the 60s and won't be able to call herself historical anymore. (laughs) But I'm sure she's just going to start a new thing. I think she is. But yeah, I mostly stay with later 1800s. I mean, sometimes I'll read the Western-based ones, but a lot of the New England, like, Gilded Age of the Victorian era, that was my favorite Six years ago when I first started thinking about my book, and it's just kind of exploded into the Christian market lately. And so I'm just like, well, you guys are all just copying off of what I thought like six years ago. (laughs) 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 Not that I told anyone six years ago, but it's just one of those things that just is becoming popular just at the right time for me. That's nice. And so, I mean, I, I think it'll probably stay popular just because they're just always changing what's coming out. Like, they'll go through phases, you know. And it'll always come back to, like, hey, we haven't had one of these in a while, so let's do that. Another question. Why does romance and historical novels go together so well? I think because we can think of the other world that they lived in. I mean, science fiction and fantasy is another world, but that's, like, blatantly, like, another planet. You can start from scratch and just do whatever you want. But with historical, it's us escaping to another world. It's just a world based off of the reality of what 100 years ago was. And do you think maybe the society of each of the world change, oh, yeah. it helps change up? I mean, it seems to be important in these sort of novels. Mm-hmm. You can always find something interesting to build a plot off of in the history of almost anything. Because things were just so different. You could just... I don't know. It's almost like a history lesson also. Like, you learn so many things about history while reading books based in history. Well, I think... That's good. Oh, give us your uh, website real quick. Oh, it's www.dawncrandall.blogspot.com. So, dawncrandall.blogspot.com. And it'll be in our show notes as well. Yeah. So good luck with your book. I really hope to hear a publishing announcement soon. Oh, thanks. (laughs) Well, that was nice to have uh, Don on the show. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think it's always cool to talk to people who are just uh, breaking in. Yeah. So I thought I'd try to break into my, use my Twitter account for once. And so it did not much effect, but I tried to ask questions about, you know, try to get audience response before we did our podcast for once. I'm going to ask people what is their favorite romances in books or TV and whatever. And I got one response from Greg Meyer, who's uh, commented on the our webpage before. Mm-hmm. Old-time and, friend of mine. And he was saying that he's very fond of Sun and Jin from Lost, which I think is a fabulous choice. Definitely. Or the five seasons, the six seasons, it's quite a nice uh, growth. Uh, from Jin being someone that you really don't like at all to it being, you know, you, you can't bear to see the two of them apart. And then he dies, and then he doesn't die, and then yeah. you know, stuff like that. And then he mentioned, um, I cannot remember the names, because Twitter's not cooperating, but from the anime Fruit Basket. Yes, the main romance in there, I believe. Which, which I'm familiar with, with the concept of the Fruit Basket, but I've never actually gotten into it. It always seemed a little too cutesy for me. And um, he, he said he's not usually for that sort of stuff either, but this one's Worked particularly well. Yeah. So, one of those things I thought, hmm, maybe I should check that out sometime. Yeah, I mean, I know shoujo is an entire genre within manga uh, romance, basically. And so I I know there's some really good stuff out there. And uh, that's, again, I'm not the one directing it. Yeah, romance and anime don't normally put together. I mean, no, I mean, not that I don't think they exist. I mean, 
most of the ones I've watched, that's not a big deal. Right. I mean, normally it's big robots and psychological problems and, you know, <laughs> giant guns coming out of your arm and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. It, it all depends on the genre. Anime has any genre imaginable. So, if you're on Twitter, follow me, uh, Nick underscore Hayden, and I'll try to ask questions occasionally before podcasts to get listener response even before we get started. If we get into a habit of this, I might try that too. So, my Twitter feed is Storyteller Frog, all one word. No relation to the Muppet. Not at all. <laughs> all right. Well, with that uh, said, let's move on to our next segment for the day, Soundtrack. So I'll go ahead and start the soundtrack. Yeah, we're, we're, do we're doing rock, paper, scissors for our soundtrack today. We both actually have lyrics in ours this time. Yeah, which it is, is unusual. Un- very unusual. <laughs> so I was looking through the various uh, songs related to love on Overclock Remix. Which you found more than I expected. And there's some really nice ones. There's this nice classical one that's remixed uh, Final Fantasy IV's theme of love. And all, both of ours come from Final Fantasies. Yes. Because they have a good... I actually, mean, RPG. don't they both come from Final Fantasy VI? They do. Yeah. Yeah. Because Six has a great story, and yeah. actually everyone has some sort of, not everyone, but there's a lot of different love sort of things going on. Like connections. connections, yeah. And the Six soundtrack is one of the most emotive yeah. of all uh, Final Fantasy So mine's, mine's remixed from um, Locke's of, what is it called? Forever Rachel. Forever Rachel. Um, because Locke, who's this thief. No relation to the Lost character. No. <laughs> actually, when I renamed him in the game, I, I called him Suave. Suave. <laughs> But anyways, in, sometime in this past, you find out he, his uh, girl had fallen down this chasm and gone into a coma? Or? I think so, yeah. And so he's spending his whole life trying to find a way to bring her out. I mean, this is kind of a synth pop, that's what they call it, I guess, remix of using that theme called Forever Young Rachel. Um, it's remixed by Poolside, which is their group name, and there's people in it that I don't have in front of me. But if you like their stuff, they have two or three different songs on Overclocked Remix. All of it's kind of a, an interesting style. Yeah, if you're not used to it, it may feel really weird, but bear with it. It's pretty good stuff. Yeah, when I first listened to it, I'm like, I don't know if I like this. And let's do it for like four more times. This is kind of cool. So go with it. <laughs>
And that was Forever Young Rachel. And it was very, very beautiful in a, in a, in a synth poppy kind of way, I guess. Yeah, I don't know if I would ever have chosen synth pop normally. Yeah, well, but, so I'll, I'll have something very different from mine, too, at the end of the show. But in the meantime, it is time for our next segment, which is Cinema Selections with Brian Scherchel. So, freshly arriving here at Pemberley is our very own Brian Scherchel. It's very good to be here, and the the trip was really enjoyable. Good. I'm glad it wasn't uh, too bumpy for you. <laughs> oh, no, not at all. You look dressed warm for this weather. Oh, yeah. What is it? We keep getting cold and warm and warm and then cold again. Fair enough. All right. Well, Brian, what is our movie for this uh, episode? It is David Lean's Summertime, and it's from 1955, and it stars Catherine Hepburn and... Rosanna Brazzi. And it is entirely filmed on location in Venice. And it's a romance slash drama. Beautiful location yeah. for it. Definitely made me want to go to Venice. I, I told Natasha, she's watching with me, I'm like, we need to go to Venice. <laughs> <laughs> and when, if you, I think if you went, I don't think you'd see what you saw in the film. <laughs> no, I think we're looking at such a perfectionist movie. David Lean's a real big perfectionist. And so we saw like a sort of idealized Venice, yeah, especially with how everything's in Technicolor, and mm. this was relatively newish in the me- in the movie realm to have a picture that looks that good. Yeah, you, you can tell they really take advantage of the color and and all that. And yeah, my sister has actually been to Venice. Uh, one of my sisters, and when we were, we were watching the tourist, and she was like, yeah, "I don't think Venice water ever looks that pretty." <laughs> no, it almost like it was a little bluish it looked really bluish yeah and i don't know exactly what the mechanics behind that were i mean she loved venice and so i have a feeling she would really like this movie but yeah it it probably is quite idealized mm-hmm. <laughs> the guy who did the cinematography by the way is a guy named jack hilliard i don't know if you've seen that name but he some of the movies that he'd done include uh bridge on the river kwai suddenly last summer topaz from 1969 hobson's choice from 54 and caesar and cleopatra from 45 which is also a big technicolor that was actually, I believe at the time, the most expensive British film ever. This, however, is an American film. It's American-funded. And when he did this film, it really ended up being the first of what would follow as like a succession of extremely good films, all with just about the same quality cinematography, and only generally they were more epic in scale. And those would the movies that he did after Summertime include Bridge in the River Kwai, which we've talked about, before, uh, I think in the first cinema selection, you mentioned yeah. possibly doing Kwai, uh, Lawrence of Arabia, Dr. Shivago, Ryan's Daughter, and A Passage to India, all of which I've seen. I've seen probably about 90% of everything David Lee never did. Definitely all the big stuff. Yeah, those are some very big names there. Um, and <laughs> they're all long, too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And this one's only, uh, what, 99 minutes? Yeah, yeah. yeah, about 100 minutes. Not It's the shorter one of, I think, all of these. Because before, he... I think this was his first American film. I'm not positive on that, but generally everything else he did was released uh, from a British cinema, and most of it did not have this kind of quality as far as the camera, the way it sweeps through things, and the way that it flows through crowds of people in a train station, or how it just shows you this bursting, amazingly photographed Piazza San Marco, where it just takes 
what, like a minute and a half, just showing us, mm-hmm. and and it's not boring. We're, we're enjoying <laughs> it as it comes. It's eye candy. It is beautiful. So give our audience a quick summary of uh, what this thing's about. Catherine Hepburn uh, plays a character named Jane Hudson, and she is, uh, by her description, a fancy secretary from Akron, Ohio, who goes to Venice and she saves, she had saved a whole bunch of money for this. This was supposed, this is supposed to be the biggest vacation, dream vacation, I believe that she said. So she visits there and the experience that she has, her character grows over certain ways and she has a lot of learning experiences. The other, basically, there are only two big main characters in this movie, and the actor's name is Rossano Brazzi. He's an Italian actor, although he did do quite a number of American films. He is a relatively well-known face at the time. He plays a character whose name is Renato De Rossi, and he's a shop owner in Venice, and the two of them meet in Piazza San Marco. Everything goes from there, and it's not exactly the way she would expect a romance to go, but yet a romance does develop. It's interesting. I just had to bring in, and Brian wasn't here for when we were talking to Dawn, but we were talking about the, she likes to make her um, female heroines need something. Mm-hmm. You know, I met a girl on the boat coming over. Uh, uh, in America, every female under 50 calls herself a girl. And after. <laughs> after, who cares? Well, anyway, this girl on the boat was waiting. For what? Oh, she was coming to Europe to find something. It was way back in the back of her mind. Past seeing things and getting some culture. That was up front about here. Buying perfume cheap about here and letting loose for once about... Well, we won't go into that, but... Way back. Way, way back in the back of her mind was something she was looking for. What? A wonderful, mystical, magical miracle. No. To do what? beats me <laughs> i guess to find what she'd been missing all her life i think in that clip she's describing herself yeah yeah mm-hmm. and we get to know a lot about her character just in that little little story that she tells but it's very important see the, this was designed off of a play and so i mean a lot of this is very well scripted and put mm-hmm. together and it seems like there are very few lines that are there just to fill stuff. I mean, most of these lines are quite important and it's easy to miss things, especially in the confrontations that she and he have with each other. There's a lot of double meanings going on in their conversations all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, Right. I had to just mention, you know, because the heroine, and I was watching with my wife and she loved Catherine Hepburn. She thought she was a great character, very witty and, you know, her, her very dry sense of, I don't know. That's not quite sarcasm, but it's mm-hmm. she. Yeah, as, as it says in the film, she makes jokes. Yeah, and and the jokes are are, are generally a little bit on the dry side. Yeah, it, it, she just delivers them great, mm-hmm. and yeah, and so she's a very entertaining heroine, despite her um, obvious loneliness. I guess. Yeah, very loneliness. Mm-hmm. For the first half of the film, it almost kind of reminded me of Miss Lonely Hearts from Rear Window. Just the lady who's always alone and trying to entertain herself because whenever she's comparing herself to other people. Yeah, if there was ever anybody that needed something. Yeah. (laughs) Miss Lonely Hearts. Yeah. It's like Miss Lonely Hearts Goes to Venice, starring Mm. Catherine Hepburn. Those moments that she has where she's alone, you can tell how subtle her acting is because she 
she shows how many different emotions during these times. Like it's yeah, a, her face changes like, like yeah, back and forth. Yeah, it's like a hesitant, guarded, very uh, tense. She's very wound up, mm-hmm. and it, she she does that so well. She she came off as a very realistic, believable yeah character to me. I mean, I, she just seemed like I could meet that person, and I I think I have met people <laughs> like that. I mean, not quite to that extreme, but. Yeah, but yeah, was... sometimes she puts on such a cheery face as if she's trying to keep herself from breaking down. I mean, down. to me, she was, I mean, you got Venice is a major character in this film, mm-hmm. and then her, and those two by themselves captivate you for the first, I mean, yeah. it takes half an hour before... Yeah, because um, she's, she's entranced by the city itself. And I, and I am too, because they, they, they walk in, and, you know, the first 15 minutes of her coming into the city, and it has all the bustle, and all the chaos, and all the... Making fun of tourism, and it's like and it's like you're there. The camera's, it is the camera's going through that thing with people. Every and you know how big this camera probably is, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's not easy to just. I mean, mm-hmm. people have their feet run over by these things, and it breaks their foot. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, the, uh, some of them are really big. I'd love to have seen the camera that did this, sort of like be able to look back and take a picture of it, just because you can say this is the camera that David Lean dragged around on a ship. You yep. were uh, on the bus in the canal. Yep. It was uh, it was there, and it was going under the bridges, and it even had the echo on the sound mm. where they're talking. Boy, that's really something to take back to Akron. Well, yes, I guess it is kind of unique. It, it's that yeah. camera's all over, it's, but, yeah. and it's almost it's like in the perfect place that it idealistically should be. It really does lure. I mean, it really does just draw you in immediately. I mean, from the first scene, you're traveling into Venice. I mean, there's yeah. no time loss. Mm-hmm. Another thing to note is that Catherine Hepburn is cast against type because mm. these are not the typical characters that she plays in Hollywood as far as the attitude that she has. She is not this reserved or wound up. She's much more in control and she states what she wants and it's very, she's you know, more direct. I'm thinking something along the line of Adam's rib. Yeah. If you've seen that, yeah. that's her personality. Mm-hmm. But like, where she, she's she doing has it, something you know. she knows she wants and she's not, she's not going to be dissuaded from getting it. Yeah, that's true. And with this, she she is cast against type. Maybe not as heavily as when Ingrid Bergman was cast against type in Notorious, but it's almost the, you get a, a certain thing, especially with the outfits that mm-hmm. she wears, because they're very conservative-looking outfits, almost like Audrey Hepburn would be wearing these outfits instead of Catherine Hepburn, maybe. Um, and it's not until maybe later on when she does her little change of, uh, like, when she gets the new dress and mm-hmm. the new shoes and everything. That's a little bit more... Her, but it's but throughout it's very classy. It fits to the character, and it doesn't necessarily fit to her as a as a, as an actress, but it fits her character extremely well. Well, mm-hmm. one thing I thought about asking you about uh, the director uh, David Lean. Do you think because this was set in Italy, do you think he took any inspiration from Italian filmmakers and how he did this? Because in some ways, it seemed to me sort of a mix between an American film and an Italian film. Just in the sense of, like, emotionally, it was very Hollywoodized. But in terms of, like, some of the, like, random shots that was not, you know, sometimes was there without really much explanation, it seemed a very Italian thing. From I mean, I haven't seen a lot of Italian films, but from the ones I want, it kind of evoked that for me. It is classic Hollywood, and at the same time, there's a little bit of difference there, and I think it's probably explained by Jack Hilliard and just by his style, because he was just known as, I think, as just this really amazing photographer. And you, that's when it sort of goes into, like, slideshow 
mode, it's almost just like boom, 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 like yeah. one picture after the other. I, I think that's that a lot of that is Hilliard just going with it, maybe, and be, maybe giving, being given a little bit more liberty to really stretch. Because, yeah, you want to try to explain the difference between Summertime and generally most of the other films that Lean did before this. Because it wasn't, I mean, he's still, I mean, Lean himself was a great, great photographer. Mm-hmm. Like, he was an editor in British films, and that's how he started in the in the British film industry. But And then he became a director, and it, it, a lot of his films are so cinematography driven and i'm wondering how he made that change and is that you think like what italian cinema like maybe like some of it rubbed off on somewhere at some point that, i was wondering i mean if not italian specifically then maybe european and since i hadn't i hadn't i hadn't looked at i was because i was in a hurry i hadn't noticed who the director was when i watched it um that him being british that might mm-hmm. also explain what why it felt a little bit mm-hmm. different to me than standard I mean, it felt it certainly felt uh, classic Hollywood in the sense of the of the romance and stuff like that. But there were just little things about it that mm-hmm. felt foreign at the same time. Yeah, there there are, and I think the, I think because the a lot of the attitude in the story is also quite Italian, in in that Rosano Brasi's character basically represents so many Italian feelings about life. Yeah, and just mm-hmm. it, it, to a T. But I think yeah, it maybe is some from the European visual like wise perspective. And then I noticed there was a a number of visual symbolism going on between you got the, I forget what the flower, gardenia. Yeah, gardenia. gardenia. Yeah. The gardenia, and you got the, the, the single goblet that doesn't have a pear. Mm-hmm. Things like that, which I think work really well because it's a very, it's a very focused story. Mm-hmm. And the, you know, the, her, the way she uses her camera and then one time she doesn't have it and it's important. You know, mm-hmm. that sort of. Yeah. Um, yeah, the camera is like a wardrobe yeah. piece. And, well, and then the, it's lost and, and that represents something very important. It, but then, so you know, you were talking about slideshow mode. Sometimes you, they have this focus on like the the statues and the 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 mm-hmm. monuments, and sometimes I wonder if that meant something. But maybe it was just showing off Venice because there seemed to be a lot of lions. Yeah. And I didn't know if that was supposed to be symbolic of. I couldn't think of anything except pride, and I didn't mm-hmm. know exactly how that would work. So I, I, I was curious. I don't know how much of it's slideshow and how much of it was and yeah. And then that, then that part when she was looking at the lions that were down there in the canal, yeah, that was I think a plot thing. But what was it? <laughs> I'm I, not sure. It was something because yeah. that wasn't just showing the yeah. canal for no reason. Well, then later, I... well, then later on when they're when the when they're you know together for a while, mm-hmm. um, there's they walk by and there's two lions. You know, they're walking through in this long, empty plaza shot. And I, it feels like that at least the lions show up a lot. And I didn't mm-hmm. know that's how much I should read into that and how much it just because there's a lot of lions in Venice. Yeah. <laughs> I think, yeah. I, most of it, I'd say, would err on the side of just showing us the maybe more, maybe to express like the fact that she's not moored, so to speak. You know, she's, yeah. she's out here and there's all this stuff always around her all this new stuff and uh, didn't she say this was her first time in europe too yeah i think I so think. Yeah. and so yeah. maybe there was just maybe she feels express the well isolation in a way at the same time there's all this huge stuff and people everywhere around her yeah. to look at mean, that contrast and it is a really interesting that shot you talk about with the two lions and their way into distance when i first saw that i was like wow that's a lot of gray right after the big fireworks scene where they're <laughs> Well, mm-hmm. for... when they're to catch a thief, yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, it was very To Catch a Thief. Yeah, To Catch a Thief was made in the same year. Oh, really? Yeah. This was Venice. That was the French Riviera. Okay. <laughs> so, directors but, were on vacation. <laughs> directors on vacation in 1955. But it, it was very interesting that, that a scene of like, like really, really bright colors was immediately followed by this very gray, the characters, and they're kind of off in the background. I have to leave it up for the viewer to make of that what you will. I think a lot of it is just really precise photography, and I think it might very well be, that might be Hildred doing that. And maybe it's meant to be somewhat ambiguous, I mean, not ambiguous, but have a mean, but not an exact meaning. Yeah, it's true. Like an emotional sense. Yeah, and I think a lot of, I think a lot of it is emotion. Um, I'm reminded a bit of uh, Japanese cinema style, and this is reflected in anime sometimes too, where you'll have scenes of just nature like interpose in between scenes and stuff. Mm -hmm. And it's not necessarily to show you anything particularly important about a tree or something like that. It's more about the meditation of, you know, I, what's going on, what the life and stuff like that. Yeah, that's a good uh good comparison for the way they use Venice in this. Mm -hmm. now, there's also a really good way to to talk about like I think there's a clash of ideals in this film. And I think it's mainly between post war conservatism and I would say maybe a Southern European way of living are we going to have the i think we might have to put it in our uh spoiler here because we're dancing around an important mm -hmm. issue here yeah <laughs> the i had and i think nick you you alluded to this earlier i had a much different feeling toward the second half of the movie than i did the first but to to talk too much more about it is going to delve into spoiler territory so if you're not afraid of having the ending about, about uh, hearing us talk about the ending listen on otherwise you may want to skip a little bit the first, what, two-thirds of the movie is largely um, establishing Catherine Hepburn's character and then her slowly kind of laying her guard down with this other um, man. Other man. Well, man. She's not a man. But <laughs> <laughs> and then they, they and then they, and then they, she falls in love and they're having a great time. Mm -hmm. And then the other shoot, the other uh, boot drops or whatever you want to say. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> He's actually married. Mm -hmm. And his he and his wife are quite apparently quite fine fine with seeing other people. She, well, I guess she doesn't see other people, but he certainly is. Yeah, they, yeah. They, They've come to the they couldn't come to that arrangement, and that's really even at that time in Europe, that's not unheard of at all. And then, and he has a very like live life, enjoy life sort of attitude. Miss mm -hmm. Hudson, you ask me why I came here to see you. Because you attract me. Why? Because you do. You Americans are even more suspicious than the French. But listen, we saw each other, we liked each other. This is so nice. How can it be wrong? Her struggle in the last, you know, third of the movie is do I give in to that or not? Yeah. And for a while she does. She she just puts her worries, her concerns aside for the moment and just indulges, you know, as well as you can indulge indulge with a lover. Because at one point she just throws her head, you know, hands up in the air and it's like, this is ridiculous. Why am I doing this? Yeah. And, be, you know, and he basically helped her come to that conclusion, but she would have come to it anyway. And instead it's like, oh, why am I even fooling? You know? Yeah around with all this stuff in my head because as he's telling you there's a noise in your head there's a noise in your head 
quiet. Let it happen. And then there's another point where he says, you need to relax. Relax. The world is beautiful when you relax. A lot of what else he says is what else. You're here. I'm here. <laughs> Let's follow that through to the logical conclusion. You did yeah. not come back to Fireworks. my You did not come back to my shop over and over again. Just about a goblet. Okay, <laughs> we know what's going on here. Speaking of the goblet, question: Is he telling the truth that is really old, or is that all part of his? I, I was I, at the end. I couldn't tell. I'm not entirely sure it matters. I know. I just. I'm just. It just. And by the end, I thought, well, maybe he said, you know, he was doing all the pulling as opposed to half letting, from Catherine Hepburn's point of view, it's half fate. Yeah. You know, but maybe it wasn't anything. Because, I mean, that's, that's kind of what she went to Italy to find. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's what she wanted from the whole time. Oh, yeah. And, and. We're not a married guy, but for but her, a guy. it's not what she, it's not how she expected it would go. It just, it just isn't the way I thought it would be. I'm sorry. But I. I come from such a different world, and I'm not going to be here long. So, it is better to take home only Venetian glass? When I watched that part again, I thought, well, does romance always work the way that you always think that it's supposed to go in your head? Mm -hmm. Sometimes it doesn't, because that's how reality is. I think that's another important part of it. But, yeah, I, I, I kind of had trouble, like, by the end of the movie, I was very conflicted about the whole thing, because it, it had been so beautiful, but at the same time, it felt like this, I mean, and she leaves, and by, by at the end of the movie, she leaves, she's like, okay, we can't keep doing this, this was fun, but it's time for me to go, I'm going back home. Well, and she has to be, she has to almost pull herself away. Yeah, I mean, I mean, she even asks at some point, help me get away from you, yeah. practically, you know, saying, get me to the to the station i have to get out of here because if i and at one point she does say if i stay here a few more days like you just requested i will stay here yeah. forever you know she's i think feels a lot for him he yeah. feels a lot for her both by the end of the movie and it has to it has to happen and we're, we're, I, if we i think it's actually the most happy ending that we could have <laughs> because otherwise she'd be his mistress and yeah. i think obviously she's better than that and not that he's not bad, but she's going to go back to America and what? She has experienced things. The way that she describes that, it's like, okay, you have legs now. Yeah. Or, or you know, okay. the, the sort of equivalent. See, she gets to go home knowing more about relationships or maybe knowing more about men or herself, for yeah. sure. And then she obviously couldn't marry him at the end because then that would just be weird. <laughs> and... After she merged the wife, no. Right, yeah, exactly. And well, then, and then what? Those kids would be her children. See, no and, and here's my here's my. Th I was I was conflicted with the ending, and it it kind of put a bad taste in my mouth compared to the first. You know, the first eighty minutes are I'm just in love with, and then I'm like, and it's for a couple reasons. First off, you know, I brought the gardenia before, but it kind of represents all her dreams that never happened, mm -hmm, yeah. and then it's. So her leaving is kind of that all over again. You know, the dream fell apart. Yeah. Basically. Which is a horrible thing, but at the same time, the, my conservative nature says, you can't be running around with a married guy. Mm -hmm. I mean, that really turned me off, too. So at the end, I think it is the happiest ending for me as well, but it's just, well, it was such a beautiful movie. I wanted to have a beautiful ending in a happy sort of sense. Yeah. I mean, not that it wasn't beautiful in a... Well, and the thing I couldn't... It's really interesting, Brian, put it in terms of her learning and growing from it, because... 
I, I can it's tell really about her character. It, like the it whole is story is, and she grows a lot. No, and um, I agree that, and she drops her insecurities about herself, and just she makes massive progress as a person. Yeah, but I couldn't quite tell though if because it seemed like the movie was also sort of implicating that it was a good thing that they had had this re- affair for a while, despite her ha- her leaving. That it was good that they had actually done all this, and that. And part of the beauty of the whole thing was that it was so short, and it's and you've got this goodbye at the train and all this stuff. And I'm like, I don't know. At this point, it almost felt to me like the movie was more about pleasure and beautiful stuff rather than about about telling something important. And like, I mean, I can see your point how she grew, how she grow how she might have grown, but for me, it was like, well, you like Nick said, she's almost kind of right back where she started. And I have to say, just my I have a I tend to have have a grudge against the the idea that. Well, you're you know, a Lutheran. Well, so. no, <laughs> <laughs> no, but I I mean, and I I, I tackled this issue some in my Strand Fred books. This issue that enjoyment of life is is the primary motive of life. If that makes sense. Oh, that's you have an issue. I have an that. issue with that. Now, I'm all for enjoying life, but I think there's certain other things that come before, but that's not even the movie's realm, but I think part of what was my reaction to the end, yeah. just to be honest. So I still think it's more of like a clash between like the American thing and the Italian thing. I don't know what your experience has been with American tourists. My experience has been that the tourists have more experience than I. Can't we sit down? No. I have offended you. Oh, yes, you are sorry I am here. Then you are glad. It may be silly to you, but I... I am not an Italian. I am an American. I thought everything happened so fast in America. Not this sort of thing. Not to me. Oh, yes. I have offended you. Signor de Rossi, I am not a child. But I don't understand understand why must you understand the most beautiful things in life are those we do not understand because she is midwest she well yeah she's staunchly midwest and she's and she i think she keeps her values i, I think she keeps her values through the movie no, i don't no. think she loses values here's a question i can completely see the italian versus the american kind of uh, view of life do you think from your point of view that the movie comes down on the side or do you think it just kind of leaves it open I think it it's a thing where it says, okay, these things will come together for a certain amount of time called a vacation. And then after that vacation, <laughs> everything will separate. However, everybody grew on both sides, really. I think he grew as well. But yeah, I I think it's it's more along those lines. And and I think since it's a play, I think maybe as a play that might have been part of the point was, was just that the feeling of, of that, of sort of being off your moorings for, for a little while and you know, there's that big dichotomy between wanting to enjoy yourself versus, oh no, that's wrong. Yeah. Because it, because the word wrong is mentioned, I believe, three times in, in discussion with in the yeah. dialogue. Yeah, I think yeah. you're right. Like, you know, in, but it is a big deal for her. her. It's a big yeah. deal. She, he doesn't have much of a problem with no, it. No, I mean, well, yeah, because he's <laughs> yeah. lived there for so yeah. long. And, and he goes to her and says, you know, yeah, attach a label to it, basically. Yeah. What you say? It's wrong. It's wicked. It's this, it's that. You are like a hungry child who is given ravioli to eat. 
No, you say, I want to beef steak. My dear girl, you are hungry. Eat the ravioli. But you know what? I'm a man, you're a woman. Yeah. Blah, blah, blah. What's and it's like, I think he, I don't know if, since I think all three of us are guys, I think we can, I don't know if we can truly appreciate the the level of Italianness that he is able to exude. And, <laughs> and like, I, the, the women in the audience in this film, I really would, I think they pretty well like him. Yeah. But it's at the same time, maybe it's to say, maybe this kind of thing is only for a fling. Which, in that case, it would make it anything but the pleasure principle. <laughs> I have to say, though, it does remind me, I read somewhere, I don't remember where, that European politicians are always fascinated with that Americans are so concerned about affairs Mar- and stuff. Things, yeah, yeah, marital things. That In Europe, they're like, well, what's the big deal? No wonder you approve of that sort of thing. Approve? What Signora Fiorini does in gondolas is not my business. She lives, I live. I approve of living. Pretending everything is fine and dandy just because you want to do it. You Americans get so disturbed about sex. We don't take it lightly. Take it. Don't talk it. Yeah. The so, yeah uh, <laughs> so I think that is on Sar- display yeah. in this movie. Yeah, like all, there's all this stuff about Sarkozy and like all of his mistresses. Wife, yeah. yeah, all this stuff going on. And it is relegated to a like entertainment <laughs> news or, what you know, it's not like the news. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. But a separate news of of weirdness that we're not gonna <laughs> delve into. And well, and as the as Renato said, hey, that's that's their business. We've got we take care of our business. You know, it's yeah. I mean, they do whatever at, they want to do. At one point, I mean, what at some point maybe Catherine Hepburn's character decides, well, what am I supposed to do now? I'm supposed to put back together Darren McGavin's mar- you know, marriage here, and and now you know she has to save that now. And then she has to find a home for uh, uh, Morrow. At some point, the the list of to do things. Uh, if you are like the greatest person on earth, it really piles up after a while. And you have to, and I think that's the point where she is able to let go, where he first kisses her. And then she said, why did you do that? And then <laughs> she kisses him again. And she's like, tomorrow. And she runs <laughs> off. <laughs> that was a great scene. I had to say the the, the kid, is, what's his name? Morrow. Morrow. Yeah. Um, having read Les Miserables, he is completely the Italian Gavroche. Uh, <laughs> I mean, he just comes apart that way, because Gavroche in um, in Lemieux is just this urchin kid who runs around and you know oh. it, he's like the king of the city and stuff like that. So it, he was a great character. I guess we hadn't even mentioned him. There's this little kid running around harassing her and selling tour. They make fun of tourism quite a bit, actually. Yeah. There's these two tourist. Uh, um, yeah, old and that's couple. the other thing. Her her growth from a tourist mm-hmm. into a person yeah and you yeah know, it, and it, li- <laughs> not 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 viewing and i guess to sum it all up it's not so much the she's not viewing it from the outside anymore mm-hmm, she's yeah. actually living it mm-hmm. yeah and she goes from taking pictures whatever you, to being the picture whatever you think about that mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's a very it's a beautiful movie it's there's some things like if what did natasha think because i know She's very sensitive to moral issues. In yeah, her films. I think I think the end put her off. Yeah. At the end, we were both kind of like, "Man, that was going to be like the coolest movie ever." Until, <laughs> and 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 I would still recommend watching it. I think it's certainly yeah, um, very enjoyable movie. But depending on your your uh, your your sensitivities, yeah. Brian, can you try to summarize this? What's the main thing you would want people to take away from uh, from summertime? Consisting of longer takes 
sweeping camera movement, brilliant photography, subtle acting, and accentuated by moments of dramatic romance, Summertime, David Lean's 1955 masterpiece, is a cinematic feast for the eye and a meaningful, poignant, and perfectly executed romance, as well as a great introduction to David Lean and his films. Summertime will be on Turner Classic Movies at 10 p.m. on Tuesday, February 14th, which the podcast should be out that day. Yeah, so... And it's not a Valentine's Day thing. It's actually in a bunch of movies with Italy. With Italy as the theme. And then also, this film is available on Criterion Collection. Very nice. Thanks, as always, for joining us here at Pemberley. Did I say that right? Yeah. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Good thing Mr. Darcy the Gentleman are here to beat you up. Yeah. (laughs) Thanks again, Brian. Yeah, thank you. All right, so that was Cinema Selections for today, and I guess it's time to wrap it up with some good old contact info, which you will ignore. <laughs> so you can get uh, visit our website at derailedtrainsofthought.blogspot.com. And you can always email us at derailedtrains at gmail.com. You can um, subscribe to us on iTunes. Which you we just recently put a link for uh, our iTunes feed on our website, so go check that out if you haven't done so yet. And then, it just if you're Twitter fans, uh, follow us at uh, Nick underscore Hayden. Or, or Storyteller Frog, all one word. And uh, just to give you a sneak peek, because we, we're not going to try to do a quirky little promo like we do sometimes at the end of episodes, not for next uh, next topic. We're, we're trying to plan our podcast a little more in advance so we can give you some more advanced notice of, on what you can expect. Next episode's topic will be a bit more philosophical, which is good. We haven't had one of those for yeah. a while. On God in Fiction is the unofficial topic yeah. title. So, it should uh, be an interesting discussion. Yeah, yeah, it'll, it'll be interesting. So listen in whether you're, you confess Christianity or not. Uh, I think you'll find it a fascinating discussion. Hopefully. Hopefully. That said, we will bow out with my pick for soundtrack. Like we said earlier, this is from Final Fantasy VI. This is a remix of the Aria de Meso Cararate. And you heard the... I hope I'm pronouncing it Well, I don't right. think... I, I think that's the name of the remix. I don't know that. Oh, well, I know Aria de Mezzo is the, it's name, the name of the, of the song. song. Yeah. So you think the name of the remix is the Cararate, right? I, that's my guess. Okay. Anyways, we don't know. I'm not up to date on my opera terms. <laughs> Neither am I. But the Aria de Mezzo from the Final Fantasy VI soundtrack is from an actual scene in the game where uh, one of the main characters, Celeste, winds up performing in an opera. And it's a very beautiful scene, and this is, again, shows you why uh, video game music is underrated as an art form. You'll find out for yourself. It's a little, This is a little, kind of a different rendition. It's sung by a man, whereas most renditions are done by a woman. My personal favorite, I think, is from the Dear Friends Final Fantasy soundtrack. Beautiful vocals in that. But this is really cool, too, especially if you like male opera singers. Like It reminds me of Andrew Apicelli, if you know who he is. But this was arranged by Jim Gray Cadium. Cad- uh, that's two people. Oh, that's two people. Yeah. I thought that was his... I think, I think one's singing and one's doing the music. Okay, so it's remixed by Cadium and Jim Gray. And this is from the website Dwelling of Duels, where they do kind of a contest on... Uh, Every month, and it has to involve some sort of live instrument. Cool. Very beautiful, very haunting, kind of romantic ballad. So with that said, we'll, we will see you next time and have a wonderful Valentine's Day or Singles Awareness Day if you're a bachelor <laughs> like myself. Um, I'll be the today. <laughs> right. <laughs> so until next time, this is Tim. This is Nick. Bye-bye. Bye.
touch my heart. 